good evening, everybody, and uh, a warm welcome uh, to the LSE uh, and to this event this evening. Uh, my name is Tim Besley, and I'm a member of the economics department here at the LSE. Um, this evening's lecture by Paul Collier is on his new book on the future of capitalism uh, and is being run by the economics department and the Suntory Toyota International Centers for Economics and Related Disciplines and is part of a program supported by the Spinoza Foundation and I'm delighted to welcome uh, Alex Moradium from the foundation here this evening. Um, in the spirit of the theme of Paul's lecture, this term, um, the LSE is organizing a series of events on new world disorders in the run-up to the LSE Festival, which will take place between February 25th and March 2nd next year, and I encourage you to look out for the program online. Um, I'm delighted to introduce this evening's speaker, Sir Paul Collier, who I've known uh, for almost 40 years and who's been a constant source of inspiration. I first met Paul, in fact, when he interviewed me for admission to university. Um, Paul has enjoyed a spectacular uh, and successful career spanning the academic and policy worlds. Uh, his uh, um, center of gravity has always been Oxford throughout, but with notable periods as director of research at the World Bank and as professor at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. In the 1980s, he was the founder of probably the first mainstream research center focused exclusively on studying the economies of Africa. And his research is particularly noted for having brought to the attention of academics uh, interested in economic development the importance of understanding the causes and consequences of conflict. Uh, Paul has played an extensive role in policy, advising numerous policymakers in Africa. And in recent years, he's been a prolific author of a series of books following on the success of his best-selling uh, Bottom Billion. And tonight's lecture will develop the ideas, as I said, in his latest book. Paul's been honored for his achievements in many ways, including as a fellow of the British Academy and was knighted in 2014. Um, I'm delighted to say that he's now part of the LSE family through his co-directorship of the Oxford LSE International Growth Center and as academic director of the LSE Oxford Commission on State Fragility and uh, Growth and Development, chaired by David Cameron. In spite of these wonderful achievements, what I admire above, uh, above all about Paul is the fact that he maintains a true generosity of spirit and a freshness in his thinking, uh, which I think will be evident this evening. It gives me enormous pleasure to welcome Sir Paul Collier and to invite him to the lectern to address us this evening. Welcome, Paul. Well, thank you very much, Tim. It's uh, always awful when you're set up with a an introduction like that, because everything after is going to be a disappointment. And especially, um, I was assured that a Friday evening at LSE, nobody would come. Um, so uh, it's, it's doubly daunting. Um, the book is called The Future of Capitalism, Facing the New Anxieties. And that's what it's about, right? That um, capitalism... I think is broadly conceived as decentralized economic decisions in competitive markets is kind of the only system we know that's reliably capable of driving up mass prosperity in the, in the long run. Um, but um, it doesn't work on autopilot. Um, periodically, it derails, um, and it can derail pretty catastrophically. Um, and so just let me start with, um, with three derailments. Um, 
so the first was, um, was in the, the 1840s. It came into a great crescendo. Um, and this was the, the, the economic forces of capitalism as described by Adam Smith. You bring people together in a factory and, uh, and they get the economies of scale, economies of specialization. They're much more productive. That's why people flooded into the cities from the, from the, from the villages. And so, indeed, the cities became, made them much more productive. But the cities turned into killing fields. Um, because when you bring people together in locations that have no adequate facilities, they're crowded together, disease spreads, um, water gets contaminated. Uh, I mean, the, the average life expectancy of a rural laborer in the 1840s was about 33, which sounds pretty ghastly, until you get to the cities, where average life expectancy was 19. So these places were absolute killing fields. Um, the second big derailment um, was, of course, in the 1930s, mass unemployment. In both cases, um, those were fixed up. Um, what we got was pragmatic responses to the real anxieties uh, that ordinary people faced. Notice that the two derailments were completely different. One was first and foremost a, an urban public health problem that was addressed by infrastructure, regulation, you know, factories act. The second one required Keynesian macroeconomics. Um, so capitalism periodically derails, but it comes off the rails at different places. Um, and, of course, it's come off the rails again. I mean, the spectacular, visible train crash uh, was, was in 2008. But I'm going to argue that, actually, the, the antecedents to that derailment go back more to around 1980. Um, and um, what is the, the present derailment... I'm going to focus on, on two um, new uh, divergences within each of the major Western societies. And one is a new spatial divergence, and it's between booming agglomerations and periodically broken provincial cities and towns. And you see that same pattern in... America, in Britain, in much of continental Europe. Booming metropolis, broken towns and cities. Um, the, uh, and the, the other new divergence is the new class divergence. Um, the new class divergence is not like the old class divergence. Inherited wealth versus, uh, versus, versus no assets. The new class divergence is a divergence in education. It's basically the, uh, the people with college education uh, and the people with less education. Uh, and again, we see that opening up both as an economic divide and, and also eventually as a cultural divide. Um, what was driving, what's been driving those two divergences, the spatial divergence and the, and the education divergence, I think underlying it is two pretty straightforward economic forces. 
Um, uh, one is uh, the rise in complexity, the, 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 the pulse of innovation trying to raise productivity um, succeeds, but the price we pay for master is to master greater complexity. That's how we drive up productivity. And to master greater complexity, we, me we need more specialist skills. And that requires tertiary education followed by some particular development of a specialism. And so the, 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 the array of specialist cognitive skills is much greater now than it was even 50 years ago, let alone a, a century ago. Um, that's the, the, the sort of the, the tertiary educated. And meanwhile, at the non-cognitive skills who went in for, for manual skills, um, uh, those, be, those skills have periodically been devalued partly by technology and partly by international trade where clusters have shifted from uh, the industrial towns of Britain and Europe and North America to uh, East Asia. Um, that globalization process has accentuated the process of agglomeration. The, the complexity plus um, agglomeration produces this, sorry, complexity plus globalization produces a big premium upon bringing a lot of very different skills together in one well-connected agglomeration. And that is, that is London, that's New York. Um, and we see that since about 1980, the um, GDP gap, per capita GDP gap between the metropolitan areas and the provincial areas has steadily widened. That reversed a process of about 200 years where actually it steadily narrowed. So something new has happened in, um, in spatial differences, the, the new spatial divergence. Um, and that's produced the combination of rising complexity and globalization has produced two different escalators. There's the, the escalator that the tertiary educated in the metropolis are on, which is an escalator of their skills are becoming more and more valuable over time. And then there's another escalator, which the manual workers in provincial towns and cities are on, and their skills are becoming less and less valuable over time. And so that's the, the two big divergences that have opened up. Um, the... Um, I'm very conscious of that because um, of both those divergences because by chance my own life has sort of straddled them. So um, I now um, you know, epitomize um, the, the rising escalator, um, tertiary education and, uh, and booming metropolis. Um, my, the, the postcode where I live turns out to have the highest ratio of house prices to income in the whole country. So I, I've also benefited from huge capital appreciation, all tax-free. Um, I'll get to that. Um, but meanwhile, where I grew up um, was Sheffield. Um, you all, nearly all know what happened to Sheffield. You just don't realize it was Sheffield because nearly all of you will have seen the film The Full Monty. 
right? That's Sheffield, right? Uh, Sheffield was a 700-year-old uh, cluster of skill in steel. Um, you know, we know it was 700 years old because it was a line in Chaucer which said, you know, the knives have come from Sheffield. Um, and that got broken in the early 80s. Um, and that was my family who lived through that. Um, and this was a pretty grim experience. Um, uh, so I, I straddle the spatial divide. I also straddle the, the skill divide. I, I'm sort of educationally pretty fancy. Um, but both my parents left school when they were 12. Um, and indeed, a little sort of emblem in the book, neither has got a copy of the book, but if you, if you do the decent thing and buy it, um, <laughs> you'll find the first thing in the book is a photograph of two little kids side by side. Um, and that's myself, age four, and my cousin, who was born on the same day as me. So we precisely parallel lives. Um, until we got to 14. Um, we were 14 in 1963. Um, a few of you will know the, the famous Philip Larkin poem about 1963, Sexual Intercourse Began in 1963. Um, and Larkin's next line is, which was just too late for me. Um, <laughs> and it was just too early for me. Um, but it wasn't too early for Sue. And so she ended up a teenage mother, um, her daughters ended up teenage mothers. Um, and so this radical divergence, even within one family, is what sort of... Uh, there's, a, there's a personal... The book is an analytic economics book, don't get me wrong, but there is a personal edge of passion about it because I've lived these big divides and I think good public policy could have avoided them, good public policy could still heal them, and yet nothing's been done about them. So the next thing I turn to is why were these emerging anxieties and divides not addressed? And the, the thesis here is that there was a sort of intellectual capture which derailed both the political party of the right and the political party of the left, and that this wasn't peculiar to Britain, this happened all, ar all around. So let me start from uh, the, 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 the political right, the philosophical right. And where do we start? This is going back bef well before 1980. Let's go back to what businessmen were thinking when these new anxieties, when the first derailments of capitalism happened. Let's go right back again to the 1840s. Right? And um, the hell on earth were the new cities of the north of England. Um, places like Sheffield, Rochdale, Halifax. Um, and, uh, and businessmen saw what was happening, and the decent businessmen were horrified. Because decent, decent businessmen, like anybody else, are actually uh, basically moral people with a sense of duty and obligation. And so my hero here is uh, Titus Salt, um, who had invented a new technology. He became a, you know, the sort of billionaire of his age. Um, he, was, uh, he built his business in Bradford, which was the, 
the fastest growing city in Europe. This was European boomtown. Um, and then he became mayor. And then in 1849, um, Bradford was struck by cholera. So thousands of people were dying. He was responsible. He was mayor. Nobody knew what was causing cholera. But what he did was devote his entire fortune, every last penny of it, to trying to first improve living standards in Bradford and then build the first new town, which is called Saltair. It still exists. It's now a World Heritage Center. And that was the first sort of decent town for, for the workers. It was, a, it was a sense of loyalty to his workforce. It was fully reciprocated by the people of Bradford. When he died, there's a statue. Thousands of people turned out for his funeral. So this was a, the first example of reciprocal loyalties that addressed the new anxieties. Um, so that's where the right was, the business community. Reciprocal obligations that actually met anxieties. And where did it move to? Well, in the, 18, in the 1980s, you got a new philosophy of the right, which basically Friedman, which redefined um, the purpose of a firm. And the purpose of a firm was not to be loyal to a community, Bradford, a workforce. There was only one purpose of the firm, and that was to maximize profits. Um, and that became standard philosophy across business schools. It was taught throughout business schools, and gradually that vintage um, of, uh, of business leader rose from the business schools to become the chief executives. And so through the 80s and 90s, you got a repurposing of firms. And the theory was that um, the more vigorously you try and get profits, the better for everybody. We don't need ethics in business. We just need um, ruthless competition. Summarized in this little slogan, greed is good. Right? That's what it meant. Um, and then there was a second um, uh, strand in, filtering both onto the right and to the left, which was a libertarian strand. Um, and that was the thesis that um, what, in order to get more vigorous competition, in order to let greed is good really uh, unleash itself, uh, you needed to get rid of regulations. Government was the problem. Right? Get government out of the way. Um, and uh, so that was on the, on the right. You move from these reciprocal obligations to, we don't have any obligations. The only obligation is to ourselves, make as much profit as possible. And then a parallel change was happening on the left. What do we see on the left? Again, let's go right back to the, 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 the foundation of the new anxieties, the, the 1840s. 1840s Britain was the, the, the first exemplar manifestation of capitalist forces unleashed, right? these industrial cities. And um, just as Salt uh, in Bradford was building reciprocal obligations between firm and workers, just a few miles away in Rochdale, we get workers building reciprocal obligations. And that type of organization was the cooperative movement, 
which was born in Rochdale in the 1840s. The same anxieties were producing the same phenomenon. Salt got copied by Cadbury, by the Lever Brothers. Its modern manifestation is John Lewis. And so there's a whole tradition in the business community that started from salt. Similarly, there's a whole tradition worldwide of the cooperative movement. What did the cooperative movement do in Rochdale? It addressed the practical anxieties of ordinary people. There they were flooding into the towns. First question, where are you going to live? And so what's the solution that the cooperative movement comes up with? Building societies. You know, Halifax Building Society. Halifax, another little town just a few miles away, became the biggest bank in the, in the whole of Britain, right? which then um, was handed over eventually to the, to the city of London, um, and uh, the city of London, those smart guys, managed to bankrupt it. Um, the, um, so that was the practical concern of where we're going to live. If you were moving to cities in the 1840s, you've got an even more practical concern, remember? You've got to be dead by 19 on average. So what really mattered was, um, are you going to get a burial? And so one of the earliest cooperative movement solutions was uh, cooperative funerals. It became the biggest funeral director in the country because that was a very practical anxiety of ordinary people, right? solved by this system of reciprocal obligations. You pay in, you take out. You know? Reciprocal obligations have a genius to them that all the rights you get are precisely matched by the obligations to meet the rights. Right? So it's like a balanced budget. So where did the left go? Just as the right had gone into the never-never land of, of greed is good, um, so the left got, take, got hijacked by two intellectual movements. Um, one was my own tribe, the economists. And this was the, um, the economists, we love to maximize things, and to maximize things we need to be able to add them up. We want to maximize sort of global utility or national utility. And for that, utilitarianism was just so unbelievably convenient. And so, um, so economic models adopted an incredibly crude caricature of what it is to be a human being, um, uh, in which uh, the utility function you know, you're all at LSE, you know what a utility function is. What's in that utility function in the models we normally use? Um, well, we're entirely selfish, uh, we like consumption, and we don't like work. Right? Um, you all know people like that, right? We call them slobs, actually. Um, uh, but notice that um, they're completely incapable of any ethical weight. Right? These people are ethically empty. Right? Um, and yet, if we're going to maximize utility as economists, um, we know that, you know, you know, for example, rich people over here, you've got more utils than, than the people over here. And, and what's more, you get less utils for the last pound than you get utils from your last pound. So we just need, sorry, to take some money off you and give it to you, and that will 
we've got to watch your incentives so we don't mess up your incentives too much, but that really became sort of the optimization problem for, um, for, for utilitarian economics. And the, the nature of that problem was we needed a sort of superclass because ordinary mortals were ethically empty, remember? They were just greedy little slobs. And so we needed, um, fortunately, a philosopher called Plato would come up with it um, rather a long time before. That, that Plato had invented the concept, you need guardians, platonic guardians, um, who will just run the place. And Plato had made one little slip. He thought the platonic guardians would be philosophers. And so, you know, we economists, we put him right about that one. Um, um, and that was epitomized uh, by new labor um, in the strategy of you let the city rip, you tax it, and then you put the north of England on Benefit Street. Right? Because all that matters is consumption. Um, that is such a travesty of a human being, of course, because real human beings um, get dignity from work, purpose, and they are ethical actors. They're perfectly capable of bearing the weight of obligations. Part of fulfillment, in fact, a major part of fulfillment, is indeed meeting obligations. Um, so it's quite a nice little um, social uh, psychology experiment, very recent. Um, you can all play it tonight, right? Um, you just sit down with a pen and a piece of paper and write down the three things in your life you most regret. Right? That is more painful at my age than yours, believe me. <laughs> um, and, then you, and then the social psychologist just clustered these things together. And if we were all economic man, it would be quite clear um, what would feature in the, in the top of the pile. You know, if, if only I'd bought that house, if only I'd bought Apple shares, if only I hadn't messed up that job interview, you know. Do you know, they don't feature at all, at all. The, the, the three big regrets are dominated by, I let my mother down. I should have spent more time with my kids and that sort of thing. They're breaches of obligation. People are moral actors, right? obviously. Anyway, so that's where the economists went. They abandoned this idea of the, 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 the left, abandoned the idea of the cooperative movement, which had become triumphal in the period 1945 to 1970. Um, the cooperative movement had always started local because it was organized locally around the practical anxieties of local communities. But by 1945, it had gone national. And it then produced this triumphant 25 years around the Western world in which healthcare, education, and so forth uh, were built. Reciprocal obligations. Um, gone national. So that was what the economists brought to, to the left. And then the lawyers got in the act, um, and this was rules and uh, the idea of uh, rights, and, uh, and in particular, uh, rights to, to, to particular groups, to favored groups. And you see what's happening, both with the economists and with the lawyers, is where are the obligations going? They're being taken away from people, P 
people are no longer ethical actors. The, the obligations are floating up. They're not even sticking at the level of firms. So individuals don't have obligations. Families kind of disappear. Firms don't have obligations except to make as much money as, profit, as possible. So where do the obligations go? They all go up to the state. Right? And what showers down from the state, like the gentle rain from heaven, except it showers more over here than over there, is rights. Right? And you see what's happened. We've detached the process of generating rights from the process of generating the obligations which support them. And that's, the, the, if you like, the moral equivalent of inflation. Um, so we see that... Um, let me, let me drill down a little bit uh, in, um, in the level of firms and organizations, both private sector firms and public organizations. And economists and lawyers do their damage not just at the level of national policy, but the level of what organizations do. And they change the answer to the question, how do you motivate people in an organization? And to my mind, the obvious answer is people need to work for a sense of purpose. Um, my colleague, Colin Mayer, who was director of the business school at Oxford and professor of finance, is just coming out with a book which enlarges on this thesis, the idea that traditionally organizations have motivated their staff by getting their staff to buy into a sense of purpose. Not so difficult. When I grew up, the, the most revered company in Britain was Imperial Chemical Industries. All sort of bright young people who were doing science wanted to work for ICI and you know, had an aspiration to be the, the greatest chemical company in the world. And then... Um, thanks to Milton Friedman and the business school gang, in the 1990s, ICI changed its mission statement from we want to be a great chemical company to we want to maximize shareholder value. Right? Would you get up in the morning saying, today I'm going to maximize shareholder value? <laughs> Nor did ICI staff. Right? The company doesn't exist anymore. Right? Actually, profits are something that happens if you satisfy purpose. And if you just try and head for profits directly, you probably don't make them. And so ICI disappeared. Um, and we see this. So that's the, what's the economist and lawyer solution if you take away a sense of purpose from people in an organization? Well, the economists come up with a solution... Um, principal agent theory, you know, you, you do carrots and you tie the carrots to monitored performance. And we know there's an awful lot of problems with that, right? especially because in a lot of organizations, it's very hard to observe performance and performance depends on teams and you need things like cooperation. Um, this is the bonus culture, right? the big carrots. Um, and this produced the, the rise in pay differentials between chief executive of banks and their, their average staff from 20 to 1, if we go back to the 1960s, 
to 500 to 1 if we look now. You know, these are these extraordinary um, uh, inequalities which divide a workforce. We know from social psychology that such huge differences are very divisive and so demotivating. And yet, principal agent theory taught in the business schools, that's where it drove. And the alternative to principal agent theory, so economists did that one, and what are the lawyers offering? The lawyers are offering the illusion that you just have to write longer and longer and longer contracts. And eventually you'll get to a complete one. Right? Um, I see Jonathan Leap here, and I'm not allowed to say that the contract between um, uh, the, the government agency which funds us um, uh, and, and, uh, and the London School of Economics has expanded over the last 10 years from 14 pages to 86 pages to get to do the, exactly the same thing, right? Um, so I didn't say that. Um, um, but that's just a, you know, a little example. You try and specify all the aspects of the job. Um, it's, it's happened to teachers, it's happened to social workers. When a social worker goes into an environment now, social work, where the very essence of the job is people should have internalized the objective. They should care about what they're doing. And then it's such a complex set of decisions, they should use their expertise and their judgment. And instead, what happens when a social worker goes into a house? They pull out, literally, you know, a 40-page questionnaire, and they go through all the observable characteristics in the household. Well, I've been through this because I've got it up to kids, you know. Um, is the glass in the window is breakable? Do you have fire alarms? Do you remove your electric plugs every night before you go to bed? Do you? But never mind. You know, in other words, <laughs> you've got 40 pages of these tick-box tick answers. And then, depending upon what the the combinations are, that tells you the action you should take. There's no decision involved. Right? It's a complete contract with complete instructions as to how to proceed. Right? No, you've shredded autonomy. Right? You've shredded trust in the person's judgment. And so, as with the economic structure, you have basically turned people into automatons who are not moral actors. People have been shredded of moral agency. Right? So we've got a bunch of whizzers at the top with the 500 times average earnings who are writing the, 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 com the complete contracts or setting the, the carrots and sticks aligned. Um, and then you've got a big stratum of people at the bottom who are chasing the carrots, trying to avoid the sticks, uh, and trying to do the tick box. Right? And I parody, but there's clearly a very powerful trend in that direction. This is the gutting of the middle. Um, what's the consequences of all that? Well, the consequences, we've seen, anxieties unaddressed lead to anger, and anxieties unaddressed and anger lead to mutinies. And that is what we've seen. Trump was a mutiny. Brexit was a mutiny. The characteristic of mutinies 
is they're not about a goal. They're a response to unaddressed anxieties. Let's take the most famous mutiny of all time, mutiny on the bounty, right? Where did those mutineers end up? They ended up on Pitcairn Island in the middle of nowhere. Um, forgive the analogy to Brexit. Um, <laughs> they didn't mean, that wasn't the purpose of the mutiny. It wasn't, let's get on Pitcairn, right? But the mutiny had very sound reasons, right? That being on that boat at that time was like the 1840s hell in the cities, right? People had felt they had to do something, right? And so we are living with unaddressed anxieties and the consequences are these mutinies. It's no good blaming the mutineers. We should blame the people who didn't address the anxieties. So, in the meantime, of course, the unaddressed anxieties then, then get hijacked by the extremes of the far left and the far right, um, both of whom talk the right talk. Um, of course, they've, they've neither any notion of how to address the anxieties. They don't have solutions. They don't even intend to address the new anxieties. Right? Of course, the far left and the far right have very well-defined, very well-understood agendas of their own. They're just using this opportunity uh, as a route to, to power and influence. So, let me in my final eight minutes ish turn to eight minutes is good, yeah. what eight, can eight be done minutes. and actually the heart of the book is not all that I've said so far the heart of the book is um, is that these are entirely fixable problems um, and with good uh, good economic policies and good social policies they're fixable um, public policy has moved on a lot in the last 50 years just like technology and so Broadly, we know enough to do something about it. Um, um, the, uh, um, if you, if you, you can challenge some, some of the solutions I put up, obviously, but I would argue that you can't dismiss them. The, um, I'm too embarrassed to read out what uh, George Akerlof, the Nobel laureate, said about the book. Um, but if you just look on the back cover, you'll see, right? Um, um, uh, ditto um, that, you know, Marxist revolutionary uh, Lord Mervyn King, former governor of the Bank of England, and that, um, and that, you know, sort of fascist philosopher Michael Sandel at, at Harvard. You know, they, they're all saying, you know, this sounds to us to be right. So what are, let me give you three... Three, three, three quick things. One, I'll start with the, the blindingly obvious one. It's blindingly obvious, but hasn't happened. And that is what happens to kids when they get to 16. And here, there are two routes. There's the route taken by the, the more cognitively able, you lot, right? And then there's a the route taken by the less cognitively able, right? And in Britain at the moment, it's 50-50, right? So we know what happens to the, the lucky 
the more gifted cognitively, um, they go to the best universities in the world. Here you are, you know. We've got three of the top ten universities in the world here in Britain. Fantastic, right? Um, what happens to the other 50%? Well, we've put huge resources into the top 50%, but we've put very little into the other 50%. In fact, if we look at um, training uh, in the labor force, over the last 40 years, it's gone down and down and down, investment in training. Right? Um, we were never very good at it, but we did have a thing called an apprenticeship system, which we dismantled, and we didn't put much in its place. Yeah? We're just starting to paddle back now. Um, but there is a role model, and the role model is Switzerland. Um, Switzerland takes the non-cognitive route very, very seriously. Um, indeed, 60% of Swiss youth choose the non-cognitive route, the vocational training route. That's despite Switzerland also having a top 10 university. I suspect that in Britain too many people are lured by the esteem of a degree because a degree is really fancy and the alternative has no esteem at all. And so we're getting people lured into cul-de-sac degrees um, that are offered by universities when they shouldn't, I think. Um, but what the Swiss do with the vocational, the 60% that go into vocational training, first of all, you can do brilliantly through vocational training. Some of the chief executives of the Swiss banks took the vocational training route. Right? So it's perfectly prestigious. Um, it's a four-year course, four-year course, leading to credentials at least as respected as a degree. And it's, it's wildly expensive. People are paid whilst they're doing that four years. And where's the money coming from? Half of the money comes from firms. Because the firms are paying so much money for vocational training, they make damn sure that the people who come out are employable and productive. That's how to do it. We've been talking about that for years, but we've not done it. So that's the simple one. It's, just, it's not even controversial, frankly. It's just that we haven't, just remember when everybody agrees that we actually haven't done it. Right? Um, and then let's take um, the people on both sides of 16. So now let's go to the, the, the people like my cousin's children, right? born to a teenage mother. And that teenage mother is in an incredibly stressed situation. I mean, she had actually got married, but you know, it ended in divorce um, because they were living in dreadfully stressed circumstances. Those of you who've raised young children will know that you know, a two-year-old can be really quite a nightmare, uh, even in the best of circumstances. And these, you know, these are young people with L-plates on them trying to, to, to get their own identity in life build a relationship, and at the same time deal with a couple of two-year-olds. You know? And so um, what is needed is not social paternalism, which is what we've had. The social worker going in with the 40-page tick box. Right? 
What we need, I call social maternalism. It's such a new phrase, Google won't accept it, you know. Um, And what is social maternalism? It's all the way along the line you put in um, help. You put in help preschool, a lot of it. When my eldest was two and a half, we moved to France, and we put him... We lived in the poorest part of France, but France has a thing called Ecole Maternelle, which is free for everybody. A state-run... There's very good, highly professional teachers, high quality, because, because it's free and high quality, everybody goes, and so the people who need it most go. And we've never done that. We've got itsy-bitsy schemes without a professional workforce, and so it works after a fashion. It works for those who want it to work, basically. So... But you go all the way along the line. I I see Richard Layard in the audience, and Richard's just produced a a wonderful new book called Thrive, which is about, it's a a classic instance, forgive me, of social maternalism. You just don't realize it, right? (laughs) Um, Which is that um, uh, we need enormous amounts of increase in expenditure uh, on mental health, especially for for teenagers. Teenage life is a very stressful time. Um, and, uh, and simple th- techniques of therapy can do a lot of good. Um, mentoring. When I was, uh, when I was 17 um, and uh, applying to Oxford, I, I came to a, a fateful decision. I didn't know what to read. I, I didn't know whether to become a lawyer or an economist, um, and I needed some advice. Um, Those of you who've read Robert Putman's book, Our Kids, will know that the biggest divergence in resources between successful families and unsuccessful families, the biggest single difference in resources is not money, it's networks, it's social networks. And the biggest single divergence of all occupations in social networks is two two occupations. Um, The poor have very distinctively more social contact with janitors. And the the richer households have massively more distinctively contact with professors. That's the biggest single divergence in the whole thing. Do you know a professor? Well, I desperately needed a professor, but with my parents both having school and when they were 12, you know, saying, do you know a professor was like saying, do you know the queen, right? (laughs) <laughs> and so I was desperate for advice. Um, I asked my dentist. Huh? <laughs> he was completely useless. Huh? <laughs> um, <laughs> mentoring, right? What I needed was a mentor. That's not impossible to provide in the modern world, right? But we don't. Right? When Daniel dis- wanted my... 17-year-old wanted to know whether to do nanotechnology or not. He just went to the professor next door. So we can change these things. They matter. So that's social maternalism. And finally, let me touch the thing that's dearest to my heart. Um, I've only left myself a minute, haven't I? Um, Which is um, how to address broken cities like Sheffield. Um, And the answer is not put Sheffield on Benefit Street. 
it, nor is it try and bring back Sheffield steel industry, but it is bring a knowledge cluster into Sheffield. And I've been working with my colleague, Tony Venables, who's one of the, the great um, economic geographers in the world. And Tony has shown that um, the market process does not revive broken cities. Of course, in broken cities, wages fall, rents fall, but what that does is fill the city up with junk activities, warehousing, call centers, firms that depend upon low cost, low skill. And that's a cul-de-sac, because you're taking all the population off that up escalator of rising skill. And you've got to get them back on that escalator of rising skill, and that means a knowledge-intensive firm, and that means a knowledge-intensive cluster. And as with all clusters, nobody wants to be the first firm in a cluster because you might be the last firm in a cluster. You don't know what the other decisions will be. And so public action, public policy is needed to solve that coordination problem. It's perfectly feasible. The Irish government pioneered investment authorities. East Asia pioneered industrial zones. Um, the, even in Europe, we've got the example, for example, of Bilbao, which 25 years ago was a broken Basque city where the narrative was, this is doomed because it's industrial decline plus it's got Basque separatist violence. And then one bit of public infrastructure which actually directly did nothing for productivity in Bilbao was introduced, the Guggenheim Museum. And what that did was reset the narrative around Bilbao. It became not a city of the past, but a city of the future. So, vocational training, social maternalism, broken cities, we can address these things. Um, we've not done that. There are many more ideas in the, in the book, and I'm sorry I've not got time to, to go through them. Perhaps you'll have a look at the book. Thank you. Okay, well, first of all, thanks to Paul. But uh, we now have an opportunity for about 20 minutes to have que questions for Paul. I'm going to collect them in batches of three. There's a roving mic. Uh, and I'm also going to... Uh, insist you make short interventions so we can maximize the number of people who have an opportunity to participate in discussion. Uh, so who would like to go first? I'm seeing a hand here. I'm seeing three hands. Um, okay, I'm seeing, yeah, we'll come upstairs. The next round of questions will be upstairs, okay? So we'll take three downstairs and then we'll move upstairs, okay? Okay, can you hear me? Yes. Um, I'm Sebastian from the IGC. Uh, thank you very much for a very stimulating lecture. Um, you spoke about regional disparity in places being left behind uh, after the decline of sort of major industries. Part of that is due to globalization creating winners and losers. Um, part of that is also about automo automation replacing sort of manual jobs and industrial processes. Um, so we're now facing a new wave of technological advance um, in robotics, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and I wonder how that squares with your future of capitalism um, when we will see more replacement of manual jobs but also replacement of knowledge, the knowledge industries, particularly routine, repetitive jobs. Many of these people are sort of college educated as well. So how should we deal with that 
that transition period of new job losses, and also do you expect to see even wider divides um, between the new jobs that we need to have and how much education is required? Okay, so we'll circulate the mic. Um, I think there was somebody... Hello, hello. Over there, yeah. Okay, yeah, very good. About the social maternalist, uh, you talk about mentor. So I think it's a very good thing so in order to tackle the inequality. So basically, um, what can you propose in order to basically make something, um, can I say, concrete about the mentor in order to have a situation that basically we are going to, to face this problem in a more concrete way? Okay, I think there was one, if you pass it along the, the way there. There we go. Actually, if you say who you are when you ask your question, that would also be good. Thank you. Oh, thank, uh, thank you. I'm a postgraduate student in King's College, London. And I have a question uh, about, uh, I want to know what's your opinion about exploitation. Uh, you just mentioned uh, the, there are new class, new cla new class diversions. And do you think uh, there will be a new kinds of exploitation in the new, uh, uh, in the future of capitalism, or do you think um, there is per, uh, exploitation in this uh, society? Thank you. Okay. Yeah. So, the, 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 for those who couldn't hear the questions, the three questions were one about um, the automation and how that's going to uh, impact on what you were talking about. The second one on how do you make the mentoring agenda. Concrete, and the third one, are, uh, do you think there are going to be or are new forms of exploitation that uh, are at the root of some of what you were talking about? Um, yeah, let, let, me, let me start actually with the new forms of exploitation. I think the, 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 the pattern I've been describing in organizations um, of, of gutting um, obligations from and discretion from that sort of central core of the workforce um, is, a, is a form of a new form of exploitation. It's, it's, it's gutting the jobs of meaning um, and it's also literally demeaning uh, in that um, people are reduced from um, autonomy uh, to, to, to sort of either chasing a carrot or um, following tick, tick box. And everything, I defer to uh, Richard Layard here, but basically what, this, what we know about well-being is that you need a degree, one of the things we know about it is you need a degree of autonomy um, to be able to, 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 to achieve a sense of purpose. It doesn't have to be um, a personal achievement. It can be the... Um, the autonomy that enables you to meet an obligation. Um, but this sense of fulfilling a purpose um, is, I think, very important to well-being. And um, shredding that from a lot of jobs, which has happened, uh, is a, a new form of exploitation, I think. Yes. Um, how do we make mentoring concrete? Um, this is not complicated, right? Um, We've got phenomenal technology. It's, it's partly it's a matter of um, rejigging social networks. Right? Um, the tragedy of modern social network technology 
is that it's made it even less likely for a poor kid to know a family who's a, who's a professor. You know, I mean, my, my friends uh, in Oxford who couldn't believe the Brexit result, the, the cliché question was, do you know anybody who voted Brexit? Do you know anybody who knows anybody who voted Brexit? <laughs> And yet 52% of the country voted Brexit and my bubble doesn't know anybody. You know, they're completely disconnected. So we've got two tribes. It's, it's terrible. And it's, it's, it's even more pronounced, I think, in America now. And that, that, is, that is awful, right? Um, uh, how do we get round that, which is your very practical question? Um, partly, we do organizations which do the damn networking, Right? Um, our NGOs um, are, my day job is to work on the poorest countries in the world, right? But we've got a mass of NGOs that kind of just do that. Um, and often when the NGOs come to me, I say, you know, kind of what about, you know, what about helping people in Rotherham um, as well, you know? Um, we could get... A, a sense of joined-up purpose through our NGOs that try and unite us again. Right? Um, many of you will follow the, the brilliant commentator Janan Ganesh, and he described the perspective of provincial Britain from the perspective of a, the metropolitan skilled, which he is. And he said, oh, it feels like being shackled to a shark. Now, just think about that phrase for a moment, shackled to a shark, right? Sorry, shackled to a corpse. I'm so sorry. I've fluffed my line because my response is that from the provinces, we feel like being shackled to a shark. But, um, but his, his phrase was shackled to a corpse. And where's the sense of shared identity and reciprocal obligations in that, Right? We've polarized our society very unhealthily. And so we need social organizations, NGOs. We need a sense of connectedness again. And that can be organized. Right? It can also be financially incentivized. It would be perfectly possible to give um, young families at risk uh, a budget which they could use to buy mentoring services. Yeah? And that would put power where it belongs. They wouldn't be having people come in and hector them and take their children off them. They'd be buying people to come in and help them. Right? Now, I think it's probably better. I would agree with Michael Sandel's line here that actually there are some things that we shouldn't use money to buy. But you know, if we can't do anything else, then use money. Um, and finally, the, the question about robotics and uh, artificial intelligence. Um, I think here the, um, it will change the nature of jobs. Um, it, I suspect it will destroy relatively few jobs. It will certainly destroy a load of tasks, um, but most jobs are, are a bundle of many tasks, some of which can be automated or AI and some of which can't. The, the, the stuff that will, as we become a lot more productive, what we will really, really, really need are the interpersonal 
relationships and the interpersonal skills. Um, and the interpersonal skills actually don't necessarily depend upon a lot of cognitive training. They certainly depend upon a lot of non-cognitive training. And so paradoxically, we'll need more vocational training, more opportunities uh, for the people who take a vocational route. But what they'll be taught is not how to make a knife or a fork. It will be how to relate to somebody who's, who's distressed. We need an awful lot more therapists. Um, uh, we need a lot more people properly trained to look after young children. The, the, the Ecole Maternelle, which in Britain are done by amateurs and in the French are done by professionals. Uh, we need um, a, a lot more care workers for the elderly. You know? <coughs> um, I'm, soon I'll be reaching the age where I go around and look at these um, retirement homes, as they're called, um, and what you will often see outside a retirement home is um, uh, um, uh, we're recruiting, no skills needed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll go upstairs. I saw a question there, so just by the person with the mic there, just pass it along, thanks, and I'll, try and, I'll do three from upstairs this time. Okay, hi. Um, my name is Karina. I'm a master's student here at LSE. Um, my question is probably for, I think, a lot of the young people in the room. The biggest problem facing us is climate change, which is a problem that seems to be sort of at odds with capitalism. Capitalism relies on decentralized decision-making, and solving climate change relies on having a centralized way to solve it. So I'm just wondering your thoughts on that. Yep. Okay. Very good. Pass down the front row here. Keep going down, just here. And then we'll go up the back there. Uh, so my name is Sebastian. I'm a master's student here as well. Uh, thank you for the insightful presentation. And I was wondering how we can use your ideas uh, in developing countries, given that infrastructure and many other issues are present. So they are, will be quite difficult to address. Okay. And then just that, yeah, but you got it. Hi there, thank you very much for all of your commentary. Um, my name is Kimberly, I'm a student here at LSC in the master's program. Um, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on how we might motivate um, private sector organizations, in particular corporations, to um, strive for more than just maximizing shareholder value. Um, are there policy incentives that we can put in place to motivate them to pursue a triple bottom line? Okay, you got those three, Paul? Yeah, they're all really good questions. So. Um, Again, let me work backwards. So the corporation, how do we retool the corporation? Remember that the present configuration of the corporation in Britain is recent and it's off the map unusual. Until I did the research for this book, I thought that it was the Anglo-Saxon world, as the French call it. You know, Britain and America are at one range. And I knew continental Europe was a bit somewhat different. Um, but actually... We're off the map, even relative to America, because we're the only country where this dogma of profit maximization and uh, if the chief executive doesn't maximize profits, which are going to be judged by quarterly profits, if you don't maximize those quarterly profits, then what do the asset managers do? 
They say, just sell the stock. If you don't like it, sell it. Right? Um, and that make, the theory is that that produces takeovers and all is well. Um, what it actually produces is huge incentives for chief executives to game the thing. So they, they work with corrupt auditors. Um, ever heard of that one? Right? <laughs> Called Carillion. Right? Um, uh, there are, you cut investment. There's all sorts of tricks you get up to to keep the quarterly profits rising. The average tenure is only four years for a chief executive anyway. Then you get a golden parachute. So everything's short term. You know? But that's very peculiar to Britain. Everywhere else, you've got much longer term thinking through different mechanisms. The French do it through basically... Um, uh, quite a big state interest. You know, the, the, the state sort of tries to put buffers on, um, on short-termism. The Germans do it through, um, uh, through the, the banks aggregating shares and instead of taking the mantra, if you don't like it, sell it, the banks take the view, if you don't like it, um, uh, interfere in the board. You're on the board you're on the board for a long time, you get to know the company, and so you improve the company. Um, France, Germany, and America all have um, big family holdings, so that a lot of companies stay with a blocking family interest. So let me give you a practical example. Um, Kraft, the huge American conglomerate, when Kraft decided to get into chocolate, the obvious company for it to go for was the fellow American company, the chocolate giant, Hershey. But they didn't. Why not? Because the Hershey family still holds a blocking uh, set of, vo of votes uh, on the board, and uh, Kraft knew that the Hershey family was very proud of having built Hershey and was not going to sell for the no matter what the price. Um, and so what did Kraft go for? They went for Cadbury. You know, one of the finest family companies in Britain, but there was no longer a family holding. And so Kraft bought Cadbury with all sorts of promises, we'll commit to this, we'll commit to that, ha-ha, right? <laughs> um, so what can you do to change that, is your very good question. Um, you do a range of things. Not what New Labour's proposing, I think. Right? I think that's basically a form of a tax grab. Um, and it's also got this idea of workers on boards, but it's, what it really means is trade union leaders on boards with oppositional, you know, it's sort of back-to-class war. And that's no good at all. Um, uh, German trade unions on the board, but, but German trade unions have a very different attitude to, uh, to companies. They've, they've had a long tradition of, uh, of cooperation with companies. Um, I think that rather than put representatives of special interests on boards, it would actually be better to change the mandate, the legal mandate of all board directors. Require them to take into account the community interest and the worker interest and the national interest. Um, and then in the board, you have to balance these different interests, and that would get into the minutes, and gradually we'd get case law built up where, you know, if you 
erred egregiously in one direction or another, um, you'd be liable for it. And so directors at the moment, it's, it's interesting, our law actually permits them to do that. But if you talk to chief executives, they don't realize it. Everybody thinks that they're required by law to maximize profits. And so you need quite a big change to shock them out of that. That's one thing you can do. You can also do tax, you can also do regulation, but above all, you need to reset moral narratives, and that takes leadership. Right? Um, firms were corrupted by bad leadership who'd internalized these beliefs that the right thing to do was greed is good, just make profits, right? Um, there's some brilliant accounts of the de de deterioration in uh, company purpose um, as a result of bad corporate leadership. Um, and so we need to put leaders in, in the spotlight and say, good corporate leadership does not mean CSR bullshit. Right? It means really walking the talk and persuading first your senior managers and then all the way down your employment structure that you've got a purpose which isn't just profit. Um, let me turn to, um, uh, I'm going to be very quick on developing countries, poor countries, because I have to say that's my day job. Um, and um, I got the, a lot of the ideas for the future of capitalism from seeing societies where reciprocal obligations um, have been torn apart and you've got very strong oppositional identities. And so I'm much more conscious of the dangers of that. Um, you know, a lot of um, social scientists in the West are sort of complacent. They, they, they assume that there must be some magic gold dust that's been sprinkled across our societies which makes us completely immune to the forces that are ripping through a lot of the countries I work on. And it isn't gold dust. Right? It's a sense of collective purpose that we used to have and has gradually been undermined and we need to get back to it. Um, but I'm going to duck the developing country question because over this summer I've just written a new book um, <laughs> which with any luck you'll invite me to next year because we launch it next year. It's called The Eye of the Needle. It's not out yet, you know, um, but it's about uh, the poorest countries in the world. So let me fi finish with the climate change question. And there are, there are two ways we could go about climate change, right? One is the paternalistic state route of um, regulation and tax. And I think that has some application, but I think it has severe limits. As you, say, as you imply, young people really care about climate change. That is to say, you feel a, a sense of there is a right thing to do and a wrong thing to do here. And we need to harness that pressure of, as it were, moral esteem, moral judgment. Um, and at the moment, we're not doing it properly. And there's a simple reason for that. And I, I became aware of it when um, I, uh, I, I invited a, a... I found a very, very clever young Polish teenager 
who'd had no chance in Britain, and so we, we, we brought her to, for the summer to live with us. And she's, she's now a researcher at Oxford. She's fantastic. But um, she's Polish, and like all young teenage women, she was passionate about climate change. And so I said, I was just writing an article called Closing Coal with Tony Venables, which pointed out that if we wanted to get practical on climate change, we had to close the world's coal industry. And although she was passionate about climate change, this had never occurred to her. It was all about emissions targets and that sort of stuff at 30,000 feet, but it had never occurred to her that it meant closing the coal industry. Well, coal miners in Poland are the nearest thing to saints that, you know, in the, in the society. And so she's, I've never seen anybody so ethically conflicted. <laughs> and, and so that got me to think, how would we close the Polish coal industry? What would be a structure that solved that problem? And so Tony and I came up with this paper, Closing Coal, which, which we think solves it. We said, what you've got to do is you can't possibly expect everybody to change their behavior at once. If the message, you're all sinners, we're all sinners, then we say, oh, so we are, and we carry on sinning, right? <laughs> so you've got to be able to come up with a reason which says, you have got to change today, and you've got to do it now. And until you do it, nobody else in this room has any obligation to change. Sorry. Right? <laughs> and so what would the equivalent of that be with closing the world's coal industry? And it's very straightforward. Right? What's happening at the moment, incidentally, is that the richest countries on Earth are using their voting power on the board of the World Bank and such like to say poorest countries can't dig coal. Right? That's really ethical, isn't it? Right? Um, my friends in Africa are really cross about that. Right? So what should we do? We should say the richest countries on Earth should close their coal industry first. Who does that mean? Germany. You know, the biggest green movement in any Western country and the dirtiest carbon emitter, right? Germany, Australia, America. They're the countries much which must close their coal industry. And until they've done that, nobody else has got an obligation to close their coal industry at all. Once they've done that, then, sure enough, it becomes Poland's turn, you know? And then the moral pressure's on you, right? You're Poland now, right? Um, <laughs> And until you've, <laughs> until you've closed it, <laughs> um, then, you know, then, then, then Botswana doesn't have to close its coal industry, you know, and so on. You work down, you create a sequence which is ethically sound. Okay, we have very little yeah. time. I have a question down here and a question there, and then we'll have to wrap up, I'm afraid. Yeah. So one down the front, please. And then a quick answer. Paul, you're very critical of profit-maximizing companies in the UK, yet you want to delegate on them vocational training. Are you thinking about a sequency where you first change the corporate sector and then uh, move education from universities or tertiary education to um, uh, firms? Okay, okay so in case you didn't catch it, the question was, if, if firms are profit-maximizing, why are you trusting them to do vocational education? Um, there was one just back here, I think. I'm, I've lost it there. There's, there's one here, and then we're done. Okay? Yeah, there you are. Thank you. Um, yeah, this is just on the kind of topic of bringing the two social bubbles together. Um, 
I think you said something along the lines of kind of potentially NGOs could play a big role, but I suppose I was wondering what your opinion is on something like a kind of national service, potentially, you know, like they have in like Switzerland or countries like that, wouldn't have to be a kind of military narrative going along with it, more kind of community-based potentially, but yeah. Okay, so role for national service. So very quick answers, Paul, and then I'll wrap up. Yeah, so um, on, first of all, the book is less radical than the speech, right? I mean, um, so the, the book says, you know, we've got to go incrementally, we've got to go cautiously, we've got to go based on evidence. Um, and so, uh, the, the, in fact, what I haven't managed to say tonight is the word pragmatism, but pragmatism is the philosophy of the book, not in the sense of anything goes, but in the deep the philosophical sense that there are no permanent ideological solutions. Each context, you need to research the context, work out what seems sensible at the time, experiment, learn from the experiment. Um, so with training, um, we start in the wrong place. Um, Switzerland starts in a much better place. It's not, it's not utopia, but it's, but it's clearly better than we are. Um, uh, how, do you, how do you get there? Well, um, you both change the narrative about the the sense of obligation in firms, and you'll get some firms that want to lead the way. You always need a vanguard of firms that will move first, and then others will copy them. And you can also use the tax system. Um, uh, As I say, the Swiss have this system where half of the costs are paid for by firms, half the costs are covered uh, out of government revenue. And that, that seems to me a good sense of, it's back to this metaphor of reciprocal obligations. The state benefits from a more skilled workforce, firms benefit from a more skilled workforce, and workers benefit. And so it should be a sort of shared contribution. Um, uh, And we go, you know, the the one advantage of moving relatively decisively is that you can change a narrative fairly fast if you've got some supporting actions. People do, are guided by narratives, so a sort of reset of narrative is possible, I think. Um, um, the, uh, should we have a national service? I, th- I think there's actually a really interesting idea of creating that sort of brand of purpose. Um, in fact, I, um, the Trades Union Unite um, is sort of keen on my work, came to see me, and, um, uh, and, they, and they actually suggested that as an idea, and I I think it has a a genuine potential for for a sort of resetting some national purpose. Um, We don't need conscription in an army because we don't need a big army, but we do need a sense of of national service for a national purpose. So, yeah, I think so. Well, um, it's my job now just to thank... Paul, I should say we'll have to leave the room quite quickly at the end. So uh, for those of you who think you'll be able to come and ask your questions to Paul as we go, I'm afraid that's not going to be possible. Um, But let me say what a wonderful lecture, Paul. Um, I I imagine on the back of this you will have a number of people who want to read your your book. Uh, It is a very interesting uh, uh, book, as you could tell from this, and and I think Paul gave us a very good flavor of both his ideas uh, and uh, some real ideas that ought to be out there and being debated in the public domain. So thank you very much for coming forward.